0: My name's Tom, and I'm the family's pastor here at the church, and it's great to be up preaching for what's the second time. Um, I'm surprised they let me get back up after last week. Gave you a bit of an epic in terms of time, but I'm back up here again, and I've got the essentials, my tissues, and my cup of water, so we should be right to go. Should handle both of them. Today actually concludes what is the last week in our series going through 2 Timothy. We've been doing it over six weeks, and Pete Milliken took the first four. Uh, Last week, I did chapter three, and today I'll be finishing the fourth and the final chapter, which is also subsequently the last words that we actually hear from Paul as well. We explored last week the idea of how it is that the world are typically faithless by nature and how we as believers are called faithful and how we as believers are to faithfully live in contrast to that of the rest of the world. And I finish this message by sharing the fact that there is a key difference between the two. And it's quite simply the fact that for the faithful, they trust in Jesus. For the faithless, They don't. Now, despite all of that last week, what I want to talk about this week is a little bit different. I want to talk about commitment and endurance. You see, it can be hard to commit to things, can't it? Yet despite commitment being a challenge at times, it's very important that we do it. Take, for example, mortgage or your rent. No one likes parting with the hundreds or thousands of dollars depending on the size of your house each week. However, it's important that you do it. If you don't make these payments, what's gonna happen? Well, you'll be homeless pretty quick. Maybe it's your marriage or your relationship. You might have said said some vows once at a nice wedding day, but if you don't choose to commit to your partner each and every day, then your relationship will eventually end. And what are the consequences of this? Well, you'll lose your finances, you'll have mental struggles, relational breakdown with those around you. It's not gonna be a good time for anyone. Or maybe it's simply your job. If you don't just show up to your job, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to get sacked pretty quickly. You're going to have no money, no ability to pay for life's expenses, and life is going to be a real struggle for you. I think you get the point, don't you? There are many, many areas in your life that require commitment, and if you don't commit in any of those areas, well, they're not going to prosper, and the results are going to be detrimental. So I say to you here this morning, you need to commit and endure. But not just to endure in anything, but to actually endure in the faith and to commit to ensuring that you endure to the truth. Sadly, in the world that we live in today, truth isn't something that people like to say that it actually exists. Or if it does exist, it's seen as a very personal thing, very subjective. You be your own truth. However, this isn't what we see in the scriptures at all. You need to endure sound teaching, because if you don't, you will wander in the faith. And you will not trust Jesus as you should. And ultimately, you will be ineffective for his work and potentially even lead others astray. I ask you this morning, if you knew that you were to die tomorrow, and I gave you only two bits of paper to write your final words, what would you say? What would you write? In this chapter that we're going to look at today, chapter 4, we actually have what is the final words of the man named Paul. The Apostle Paul. The one who had a radical transformation from Saul to Paul. He had his life changed completely. And he changed from the person who despised the early Christians, he didn't like Jesus, to become someone who actually gave of his life to guard, to spread and to shepherd them. So I think that this morning, the fact that these are his final words makes them even weightier. Whilst our final words, or my final words, would perhaps be who gets the car, who gets the house, and it all goes to my dog, just so you know. Gilchrist is his name. Or maybe you'd write thank you to certain people, or a couple of nice things. Paul does nothing of the sort. He uses his last written words to encourage those in the faith. So we're going to look at three points to answer this question of what are the consequences of not following the truth. The first point you're going to see is that Paul's going to answer what it looks, for like, looks like for us to endure, in particular with that of sound teaching. Secondly, we're going to explore why it is so easy for believers to stray from the truth because of what Paul calls itching ears. And finally, we're going to see what is the reward for those who endure for this, for this truth. So if you'd like to open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, they will be up on the screen, just the first two verses for this morning to start. It says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, both the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul opens his final chapter by making a charge. A charge is a duty and a responsibility that must be obeyed. When you go to court, and hopefully you don't have to, but if you do go to court, the judge will read the charges out. And they will say, you've been told you must go to jail for this length of time and for this reason. It's not negotiable. That's what's going to happen. And Paul's making a very similar start here. But it's not just his own words. He goes right to the top. (laughs) Paul is writing to Timothy and subsequently to you and I today in the church, and he's effectively saying, this is what I need you to do. And I say this not just with my own words, but from God himself and in the presence of God. You see, the reason for this charge is that he wants Timothy to be someone who will reprove, exhort and rebuke with patience and teaching. And this is very important for you to understand, as in this text, he is outlining what is the key responsibilities of a minister of the gospel. They are to reprove, which means to correct or to redirect someone. Exhort, which means to strongly encourage or to urge someone. To rebuke, which means to express disapproval because of someone's behavior or actions. They're to be patient because people are stubborn. I know that, I am myself. And they're to teach the word of God faithfully. You see, none of these things are fun. We don't enjoy having to get up the front here and to do them or to meet one-on-one. And I know and I can say that because I've been on the receiving end myself. No one likes being rebuked or corrected. It's a terrible feeling, but you need it. I need it. It's certainly not what I want to get up to on a day off. But they are so, so important that we both minister that and that we both receive that so that we can become more like Christ. Yet, whilst there are things that need to be done, there are plenty of times, or as Paul writes, seasons, where you just don't feel like doing it. Yet, in Paul's eyes, regardless of what season you're in, it simply isn't an excuse. Now, for those of you who are here, if you cast your mind back to early in the series, Pete talked extensively about about how Paul likened himself to be a soldier. In chapter 2, verse 3, he said, Share in suffering as a soldier of Jesus. He drew the comparison to the fact that a soldier is always ready to go. And Paul is doing the same thing here. He is saying that for the believer in Christ Jesus, there is never a moment where you should say, yeah, I want to preach or believe today, but not tomorrow. He just says, preach the word. And in doing this, he does use what is quite a strange example, where he talks about seasons. So just like today, we have, it feels like winter all the time at the moment, but we have summer, winter, autumn and spring, so we have different seasons in life. You might be in a good season right now. Or you could be in a bit of an off season. A good season to you could look like God is answering your prayers. Work is easy. Your kids are well behaved. And for you at the moment, life is pretty cruisy and happy. But for some of you in a bit of an off season, well, life can be really hard. You might be struggling or being tired of why you're single or the relationship isn't working. Marriage is difficult. Kids just frankly, aren't any fun at the moment. We're battling with sin and you're just wondering, when is this season ever going to end? These are the seasons that Paul is talking about. Yet, despite knowing this full world and having experienced these multiple seasons in his own life, he doesn't say to you, when you feel better or have more time or have better health or have more money, then you should preach. He simply says, whatever season you're in, preach the word. I'm not saying that we should ignore hard seasons in life or pretend that they don't even exist. In fact, I have many ups and downs in my life, many of those times. Just ask my wife afterwards. However, if I were to only ever show up to church here or to lead youth or kids on a Sunday or whatever it might be when I was in a good season, you probably wouldn't see me half the time. On top of this, as I was preparing and considering for this message this last couple of weeks, I was thinking about the fact that there are those around the world who are persecuted for their faith. And the question dawned upon me, would I still preach the gospel if I was threatened with jail for simply preaching at youth or at church here on Sunday? Would I do it? Would I do it in that season? Because whilst it isn't a reality here in Australia at the moment, it could be one day. However, it definitely is a reality for those overseas There are plenty of brothers and sisters in the faith who, around the world, it's a daily thing for them to be killed or to be persecuted for preaching the word. Because in case you didn't know, preaching the word isn't popular. Telling someone that they have sinned, and that they need to repent, the world hates it. That's if they even choose to listen to it. And for those who do hear it, they just despise it. And sadly, there are many in the church who don't hear it either. Yet, despite the outcomes, good or bad, or the location in the world, and however poorly it may go in an earthly sense, it must go forward. It's the good news of Jesus. And it is the most important thing for anyone to ever hear. So regardless of the crowd, big or small, persecuted or free, Paul does not give an out here for a season or a time when it is to be done. He says, he is very clear, it must be done at all times. Just consider for a moment in Acts, there's two stories, Peter and Stephen. Both of them preach the word. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and he got about 2,000 converts, it says. Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7 and he got 2,000 rocks. It was the same message very different outcomes. But it had to happen. must go forward. And what we can see here, even in Acts, and in the text from Paul today, is that you shouldn't alter your preaching regardless of the audience or the outcome or whether you feel ready for it or not. God can and he will use you for the purposes needed in his word being proclaimed. So the question then becomes what is the word? If we jump back again to 2 Timothy chapter 1, it'll be up on the screen if you can read that. This is what the word is. He saved us and he called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In this letter, Paul is simply saying to Timothy, the word, well, it's the things that I've taught you about Jesus. And Paul directs Timothy very clearly, preach the word, just as he had been taught. He doesn't say to him, preach about a book that you enjoy reading, a great idea that you have, a thought that's just come to mind, or five steps to help you live a better life in this way. He says to preach the word. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, read or listen or watch other people. I do it often. I think it's healthy. And I did it a fair bit, especially in preparation for this talk. However, it must never take the place or the spotlight from the word of God. Last week, we learned that that Paul describes the Word of God as being God-breathed, meaning it is directly from God. We have no other resource higher than it, period. We must only ever seek to obey, to preach, and to teach it, regardless of what season or circumstance might be going on around. Now, look, you could sit back and go, well, that's great, Tom, but he's talking directly to you as the pastors. And I say to you, yeah, he is, so you should pray for us. Because it is a massive responsibility that needs to happen for you guys in the church. But I would also say to you this morning that we learned in the first couple of weeks of this series, you don't come to church uh, for any other reason than a half-time break. You come to the church to be taught, to be encouraged and to be challenged, so that for your other six and a half days of the week, you can be on mission. Regardless of what season of life you are in and the outcomes, good or bad, you need to preach the word. You are called to do it. You all have friends and family who don't follow the Lord. And whilst many think, if only I could get them to church and that would convert them, I say to you, that isn't the biblical model. You love Jesus, do you? Good. You should tell others about him. Doesn't mean it's easy. I struggle to do it. We get afraid. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? But if you ask Jesus and ask him to open doors of opportunity, he will do it. And the best news is he will always be with you. So now that we've looked at the priority that Paul puts on preaching and on the word of God, he actually sets it as a model or or, I guess as an example of what it is that truth should look like. And the reason that he's doing this is we're now going to see in verses 4 and 5 that Paul is explaining to Timothy why it is that people, we as humans, are prone to stray from the truth because of what he describes as our itching ears words for this will be up on the screen shortly. You know, it might sound like Paul is pushing awfully hard about the word to be taught very faithfully. However, believe it or not, Paul has a good reason to do this. You see, prior to chapter 4, he's made three other statements which are actually prophetic. And they're prophetic in a sense in which way the world and society as a whole is going to go. I'll just read these out to you. In chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, he says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Chapter 3, he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. I won't read all of them, but he says, people will be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, uh, ungrateful, unholy, lovers of self, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Then chapter 3, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. He makes three prophetic claims, which all come to pass. But he now goes on to make what will be his fourth and his final prophetic claim. And this one is very targeted. It's very specific. And it's directly to those in the faith. And it says this. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul starts his section off by using two words, and he says, they will. Now, that's pretty important, because when he says this, it shows very clearly that he's actually speaking to the believers in the church. How do we know this? Well, it states clearly that they will not endure sound teaching. Now, for someone to endure something, they must be hearing it in the first place. These people, at some stage, have heard sound teaching, yet are choosing to depart from it. Perhaps more simply put, you can't depart from something that you were never in. Sadly, this is something I've seen play out firsthand. For those of you who were here last week, you might remember back to my last story that I shared, and of how a couple of years ago, there were several people... Both in my life, as well as some big figures who I knew, or sorry, who I was aware of, who committed what we call apostasy. Well, they had denied the faith that they once professed. And that as I read and investigated and had conversations with some of these people, and to be honest, even recently there's been more of it that I've been aware of, the key theme within all of them is that what unraveled is what they believed about Scripture. And slowly but surely, they shipwrecked their faiths. You see, for none of these people, like, did they wake up one morning and just go, yeah, I'm not going to believe today. But instead, it came as a result of slowly disbelieving in the Scriptures and choosing to choose their own mind over that of what the Word of God says. Now, I'm not saying at all for a second that we should be ignorant or flippant with respect to understanding Scripture. I actually think it's wonderful, and we are so much richer because of those great minds who've been able to wrestle with Scripture and print out textbooks. Without them, I wouldn't be at Bible college. We wouldn't have a lot of the doctrines articulated so clearly like we do today. It's a wonderful thing. However, at the end of the day, there are some things in Scripture which I would call and we would call mysteries of God. There are some things that we simply cannot comprehend the full picture of this side of heaven. We're not God. And we must be very careful that when we read Scripture and disagree with it with our earthly minds, not to just write it off, or to try and twist it into what suits our own thoughts, but to instead seek to understand it from God's eyes. You know, there's this notion that goes around where people need to unlearn or to deconstruct their faiths, to somehow move to this greater level of understanding. They don't like what God says, so they'll twist it to their own level of understanding to make sense for them. And you see, for the people in this boat, they reject biblical truths and they surround themselves with teachers to say what they want to hear. That's why Paul is using this metaphor of itching ears. Some translations call it tickling ears. He is saying that these people, they won't like something, and instead of reconciling that with God, they will deny it and find someone else to, to agree with what they think, and they'll wander off into myths. Now, it was about the late 90s, early 2000s. I would have been about six years old at the time. My mum's laughing at me there. There was a movement called the Emerging Church. This consisted of some very heavy hitters who sought to do things a little bit differently. Participants in this movement sought to live their lives of faith in what they believed to be a postmodern society. Now, what those who are in this movement mostly agree on is their disillusionment with the organized and institutional church and their support of the deconstruction of what we would call modern Christian worship, modern evangelicism. And even the nature of the modern Christian community. This has then subsequently evolved into what we would now know as as progressive Christianity. For people in this movement, there are many phrases and themes that are thrown around. They'll use words like, We just want to have safe spaces for conversations. We want to have conversations where everything is on the table and very subjective. We need to unlearn past errors from previous church teachers. Or even terms like, we need to discuss what this Jesus thing is all about. No statements of faith, because they say that they alienate people. They push people apart instead of connecting them. And that's just some of the things they believe. Then you move towards their actions. They push against what we would call the large mega church, sit-in-a-row type setup. And they'll try and find creative ways of coming together. Sitting on sofas, using candles for lighting, paint the walls. Strange and different things all because it gives a fresh and a new release to different people's expressions. There is no clear-cut list on what it means to be emergent. It's just a general reactionary movement, and it is seriously popular. Very, very popular. Yet what I find most concerning about this movement is their attitude toward doctrine. It's, It's very, very troubling. Sure, to be honest, I think some of the stylistic things are neither here nor there. Whether you sit in a home or in a church building, whether you sit in a circle or in pews or on the floor, it doesn't matter. They're all just peripheral issues. One commentator I read, he said, it's just the wineskin, it's not the wine itself. But the real concern is the attitude toward that of truth. People in this category, they don't believe in one singular truth and they will never ever make or support a claim that is the only truth. Nothing is ever, is ever either or, good or bad, right or wrong, ugly or beautiful. It's all, all vague. For someone in that boat, one plus one might equal two, but it might also not, depending on how you wish to interpret it. And you see, the problem is that as you talk with these people, it's actually very hard to understand their concept of truth. It's purely subjective, and it's incredibly contradicting. So what happens for people in this category is it starts off with the discontent with the church establishment. It then often moves to this next stage of questioning the infallibility and the reliability of Scripture. And before long, it moves into specific areas where they don't like these topics. Heaven, hell, judgment, sin, headship, marriage. And before long, these areas come down and all of a sudden the work of erosion is complete. Just take marriage, for example. The world and the progressive church love to preach the message that God is love. And therefore, we should just love unconditionally as a result. But you see, not only just love, but also encourage and accept the lifestyles of people. I guess that people are in. Now, no one is without sin. I understand that. And we are called to love others, 100%. I agree with that, absolutely. But the point I'm trying to make here is that if you work hard enough, change a few choice words deny the relevance of the text of today, draw some scenario about Jesus actually meant this and get the backing of a couple of authors You have a few New York Times bestsellers, then sure, you could probably hold that view that it's acceptable and to be encouraged. But I say to you this morning, that view is arrived at not because God says it's okay, but because man wants it to be. And they will twist it and make it sound like it's okay or because that's what they desire. I fully understand that there are certain passages that are hard to believe or hard to even reconcile with. I've I've struggled with those. Absolutely. But I want to encourage you with the words of Isaiah 55. It says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You are not God. You are not God. There are mysteries and things that we cannot understand. And I say, thank God for that. We do not have the ability to fully comprehend all that it is that God has and all that it is that God is doing. And the scriptures say that we are merely clay in the potter's hands. So when it comes to scripture, I say to you, pray, read, seek, Ask the Lord to enlighten your heart to what it is that he is saying. But there will come a point where you must choose and you will need to submit to those words and to rest in the fact that God is sovereign. These are the mysteries of God. Now, I've spent a fair chunk of time here talking about what it is that those who depart from the faith do and what their actions are. But I thought it would be helpful if I was to put up on the screen to show you what I believe are six core doctrines that need to be found in any God-fearing church. And they're this, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The humanity and the deity of Christ, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Atonement, the reconciliation uh, or God and humankind through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Resurrection, that Christ rose from the dead and the return of Christ, that he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. If you remove any one of these, the others all fall over. But sadly, for many who have their ears tickled, they would agree with them at first. However, slowly they will erode, and before long they'll end up in denial of even some of of the core doctrines that have been listed. And very sadly, those people will no longer be surrounding themselves with what it is that they need to be hearing, Instead, they will surround themselves with what they want to be hearing and they will make a shipwreck of their faith. It's a tragic thing. I don't want to leave you disheartened though. I say this to you this morning. Uh, If you have scriptures or themes that you are struggling to wrestle with or you have doubts going on in your mind at the moment, do not stay hidden and silent on them. That is the worst thing you can do. The enemy loves that. Don't be unseen. You should come and talk to one of the pastors, one of the elders, one of the community group leaders, and we would love to sit and listen with you and to exhort you in this area to keep the faith. But do not stay hidden or stay silent if there is doubt or struggles with passages of text or themes going on in your life at the moment. It's just too big an issue to be doing that. So we've looked at what it's like now for those to stray from the truth because of what we call itching ears and the way that it is detrimental. And we will now move to what are the final words from Paul. This is it. The Apostle Paul, his last words. And we will now see what it means to be committed for the sake of the crown. Going back a number of years towards the end of high school, I looked very physically different. I had gone from being a rather sporty person, quite active and fit, to someone who had become, let's say, quite overweight. Overweight. Uh, it happened largely because there was an injury at that time, which meant that almost overnight, I stopped. All of those different activities that I was doing, they just had to end. And in the end, here we go, information for you, I put on nearly 30 kilos above what I, uh, where I should have been. And after being in that place for several years, I recognised, it took take me a while, that I needed to make some changes. However, I didn't want to do it. I simply didn't. And at the time, I was seeing a physiotherapist, And he said, Tom, I think you need to lose some weight. And he put me on to a personal trainer. And for the next five years, began a journey, a very expensive one, towards better health. His name was Darren. And almost every week for this time, I went to the gym. He would encourage me. He would discipline me for eating KFC and drinking iced coffee. He would teach me how to lift weights, how to train. He would message me throughout the week and he would challenge me. He set up meal plans. In some weeks, he would even simply do laps with me around the university gym, just walking as I was in tears with how difficult and how hard it was. Darren cared deeply for my physical health. And what was the result of it? Well, it's his peak physical specimen that you see up here today. (laughs) No, it's not at all. I've actually put a bit back on recently, uh, all thanks to the Kenilworth Bakery. um, But we are working hard to head in the opposite direction. No, truth is though, I did manage to lose that weight. And I also managed to put on some muscle. And during this very, very challenging time, it was truly transformative in my life. And even now, two to three years after I've stopped seeing him officially, I train. And I'm very conscious of ensuring that I don't go backwards from all of that hard work. I had plenty of mornings, trust me, where I didn't want to go to the gym. I still have them even now at times. And I had lots of moments where I doubted if it was ever worth it, especially when you're throwing up. I even had a couple of times where I lied to Darren and said I wasn't able to be there because I was sick or had some excuse, but in reality, I didn't. I just didn't want to go that day. Yet regardless of that, I patiently was encouraged by Darren and as a result, I was able to complete the task. I was able to persevere. And as a result, I obtained the goal. I obtained what I set out to do. And how did it happen? Well, I was patiently encouraged by someone. I put myself around someone who would train me, who would equip me, and who would ready me for the task at hand. And in the end, I committed. I persevered. Verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul writes these words because he knows that he's to die very soon. And he has used two expressions to describe what is to be his impending death. The first one is this. He said that his life was being poured out as a sacrifice to God. This is a direct reference um, back to Judaism, where after the Jewish priest would offer up the lamb, a ram, or a bull in a ritual, he would then pour wine beside the altar. This was the last act in what was the sacrificial ceremony. All of this, which symbolized the dedication of the believer to God in worship. So this pouring out of wine actually pictured the gradual ebbing away of Paul's life, which had been a living sacrifice to God since his conversion. You see, Paul did not think of himself as going to be executed. He thought of himself as going to offer his life to God. His life was not taken from him, he was laying it down. You see, ever since his conversion, Paul had offered his everything to God. His money, his education, his strength, his time, his body, his mind, and even the devotion of his own heart. The only thing left for him to offer was his own life. And gladly, Paul was going to lay it down. But the second example and thing that we can see here is that Paul's actually getting ready to depart this earth like someone who would be getting ready to fly overseas to another country. You see, the apostle believed that Nero would not release him from prison at that time, but would instead have him executed. And in fact, Christian tradition actually says that Paul indeed did die as a martyr in Rome. But you see, Paul's impending death, and what he knew was coming, it gave him a sense of urgency. He wasn't sad about leaving, but it did fuel him on to want to share with Timothy. Timothy. And Paul has used what we would see as two metaphors to describe his life in this passage. The first one is a soldier, and the second one is a fighter. And these directly refer back to what we learned in chapter 2 early on with Pete, which point to the fact that Paul has a very single focus and a very single-minded desire. He was ready to do whatever was needed, only that he might serve the Lord faithfully. The other thing to note is that he talks about being an athlete and saying that he's finished the race. This means far more than saying that he's run a race and got to the end. But it actually highlights the way in the fact that he, was, that he competed following the rules. Again, earlier in uh, chapter 2, Paul writes that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And Paul says, what are the rules? Well, it's to suffer for the gospel. Paul suffered, he endured, and he persevered, and ultimately he kept the faith. And in fact, this is actually where the expression we have today of keeping the faith comes from. But see, Paul didn't use it just to say keeping the faith about anything, as we might use it today. It was actually a statement that he was making that he kept the faith, the true Christian faith, which is an enduring confession of Christ. Paul spoke of keeping the faith as a grand summary of the Christian life well spent. And to you as a believer today, it should be something that you want to do as well. You should want to keep the faith. And to one day hear the Lord say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. We should be excited about heaven. Paul was, I am. He knew that just as Christ was raised, so would he. And that he would receive the crown of righteousness. Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, because he had been faithful, Paul did not dread dying. He looked forward to it, he looked forward to seeing his Lord. And as for you and I, as the believer today, it should be our mindset too. Now, of course, no one's looking forward to dying, or I should say the process of death, be it painful or tragic, whatever it may be. But as for the believer, for us, death is simply a doorway into eternal life. And Paul knows his full well. In fact, something we don't talk about a lot in the church is that of rewards. And Paul even goes, or well, he mentions what is called the crown of righteousness, which he says will be given to him on that day, by the righteous judge. Now it's understood that this symbolizes the fact that there will be an actual moment in time when before the judge we will be declared righteous because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. This is truly the best news. Because it isn't just for Paul, but this goes for all Christians who like Paul have loved the Lord's appearing and who long for his return. And this gave Paul tremendous hope and confidence in both life and in death. And it should give us the same too. To know that one day, the brokenness of this world, the continual wrestle with the earthly flesh, and that all sin will be done when Jesus comes to make it new. That alone should be enough to fuel your commitment to endure, regardless of the circumstances in this lifetime. Faithful commitment and endurance are hard. We must do it. We must do it, church. And we can do it. We can do it with absolute confidence and joy. Why? Because we have a saviour who has done it before us. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He endured the cross scorning its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's our hope and confidence church. When life's hard, when seasons suck, when you don't know why you want to get up in the morning and and get on with it, you don't want to turn to the Lord, that's what you should look to. No other God has laid his life down. He's given us his only son to reconcile the sinful people. Church, as we arrive at the end now of what has been this six-week series in 2 Timothy, I implore you, remember Christ. Remember what it is that he has done. And you can take great joy in knowing that he fully understands and he fully gets it, what the challenges of this life are. But the best news of all is that he is with you all the time by his spirit and he has promised that he will sustain you and that you will endure because he is with you. Put your hope and your confidence in this very good news this morning. However, church, there is a question to finish this all up that Pete and I both have at the end of this series that we want to leave with you, and it's this. Do you long for his appearing? Do you long for his appearing? You should think on that long after the service. You see, if you long for Christ's return, if you long for Christ's return, well, it shows that you've suffered for the gospel. And you know that with him returning... Suffering will end. It also shows you have a very singular mind, like a soldier. And you're not worried about the things of this world. You're not getting caught up in things outside of it. You're focused on Christ and what He wants. Or, are you in the other category, where you don't long for His appearing? Are you so focused on the things of this world, the pleasures of it, the struggles in it, that the thought of Christ returning either doesn't even come up for you, Or it doesn't matter to you. I really want you to consider that. We both do.